going to open up in Scripture to a collection of verses in uh, our Bad Theology series. We're in week four, talking about grace. Our Bad Theology series, if you remember, is looking to unpack some of the undercurrents in Western Christianity that disrupt meaningful discipleship in the church. Uh, Bad theology seeks to take certain aspects of Scripture, certain truths that passages uphold as right and good, but seeks to flatten out all the rest of Scripture that puts that in a little bit of a tension. Because discipleship is about living the tensions of life with God. Uh, the, The gospel itself presents us with absolutely astounding tensions, right? God dwelling with humanity, sin being dealt with through sacrifice and love, um, on and on and on it goes, love and judgment, all these different dynamics, and we live swept up in the middle of them. And so for the first four weeks of this series, we talked about the gospel, we defined the gospel and sought to unpack some of the ways that we oversimplify the gospel Um, Jesus didn't die just so that we could be saved to heaven when we die, but so that the kingdom of God would be here now and accessible to us and to make a way for us. Last four weeks, we've we've been talking about the word grace. Grace is another word, just like gospel, where it's so flattened out in our day and age that it's lost so much of its rich richness that the original authors of scripture wrote about. Today, we're wrapping up with the fourth week on the word grace, and uh, hopefully it's helpful for us. Real quick, before uh, we dive in, on the back of your seats in front of you or in your pamphlets, there's a QR code. That is your key to everything about getting involved in the life of our church, the Commons LA. We're not, we are not a uh, Sunday service, a space where we can come and attend, but we are a people. Um, We believe that relational presence with one another, being a part of the fabric of community in the church is what Jesus invites and sweeps us up into. And so that's the key, or really just talking to somebody who looks like they know their way around would be another great way, okay? So let's listen to God now through his word, by his spirit. Would you stand with me? And we're going to read the scriptures that you have printed out in your weekly handout. Let's read these and pray. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. John 14.18-21 I will not leave you as orphans. This is Jesus. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 John 4.4 Little children, 
you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Romans 15, 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together with you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, you know our need. Uh, we, we have seen, many of us, uh, faintly the gift of your gracious presence with us. And I am sure that all of us in this room, uh, whether implicitly or explicitly, feel our need for you this morning. And so would you please meet us? Would you specifically help us to see uh, your grace as the power for endurance in this life? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can take a seat. So, we've spent uh, four weeks talking about this mega theme in Scripture called grace. Uh, first week, you can find the last few talks online, uh, tcla.co slash resources. You can go back and listen more, but just a quick summary. Uh, the word for grace in the New Testament is simply the Greek word that commonly was used to refer to a gift. That's all that grace really means is, is gift. Grace, though, in the New Testament is the gift of God himself. It's the giving of God himself to us in all of our need. A little bit more expanded, grace is the powerful presence of God doing in and through us what we can't do ourselves. So imagine humanity, whether individuals or human community like us, all of our need, our weakness, our evil, our brokenness, our, our compulsions, our addictions, our enslavement, our suffering, all of that coming into contact with all of who God as God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creator, sustainer, powerful, glorious, beautiful, coming into contact with human communities. Grace is that threshold. Why we're spending four weeks on grace is because the difference between being a Christian in name, saying, well, I believe in Jesus, so I'm going to go to heaven when I die, being that kind of Christian that's so common in our day and is rightly critiqued and criticized, and being a disciple, one who is learning the way of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, believing that he actually created a new way to be human together with God and one another in the church, the difference between those two is growing in grace, is learning the life of grace. No longer in our own strength, 
no longer enslaved to sin, no longer subjected to the world, but living in the kingdom of God that's accessible to us now in Jesus and what he's done in the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit in us and among us and underneath the great, sovereign, affectionate love of God our Father. That's why 2 Peter 3.18 that we've read every single week at the start says a command about grace. We're commanded, if we, if we want to follow Jesus, we're commanded to grow in grace. That means that there's learning to be done, right? It's not easy. It's hard. But it's accessible. The difficulty is not because it's too far off. The difficulty is because we've been immersed in a, a different way for so long. And so, today, we're going to finish our conversations about grace. And we've talked about this guiding metaphor, the image of a house. The aim of the gospel isn't just for when we die to go and be with God, but it's about living the with God life here and now. And the New Testament authors use this word grace in so many ways to describe what that life is like that if we try and, try and boil it down into any one definition, we're going to end up really, really short of what the full access of grace means for us here and now in our lives. So we've been talking about this, this analogy, this metaphor rather, of a house. It's the house of God and his presence. And we've identified at least six different aspects. We're not trying to be all-encompassing, but we're at least trying to be comprehensive. And the first element of grace is the doorway. That is justifying grace. That's what gets us into the life with God. That is the doorway of Jesus in the gospel, what he has done for us. You cannot get into life with God. Father, Son, and Spirit without entering in through the Son. That's what Jesus said when in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is the doorway. Secondly, transforming grace in the New Testament is like the laundry room of the house. It's where we take off the dirty, mangled clothing that we've picked up in the world and we put on the new robes of our transformed selves in Jesus Christ. The robes of beauty, holiness, purity, literally of heaven breaking in on earth. The third place that we spoke of in this house of the with God life is reconciling grace. It's the living room. It's where we grow deeper in relationship with God through the process of relationally confessing sin, acknowledging our brokenness, and receiving forgiveness both from God, but also with one another. Just because uh, we have access to the relationship that we have with God doesn't mean that we've been immersed in it fully and as deeply as possible upon entering into it. It's this dynamic of continually growing with God and one another in the church. Reconciling grace is the living room. Last week, we talked about a couple more. Satisfying grace. That's the dining room. It's where feasting happens. It's where we feast upon God's glory to meet us in our deepest longings and to fulfill us in joy and peace and to repattern and free us from our compulsions, our addictions to other things and peel back the layers where underneath those addictions and longing is so oftentimes our longings. 
Our very appetites are transformed by satisfying grace with God. And fifthly, the gifts of grace. This is like the backyard. It's where we learn new skills. It's where we learn to create. It's where we learn to play. It's where we learn who we've been made to be with God out in the world to become and use the gifts that God has given us for the sake of others and the glory of Jesus. This week, we're talking about the sixth and final element that we're at least going to be covering. That is sustaining grace. Sustaining grace. We enter the sleeping chambers of the house of the with God life. We enter the place where the bed resides, where we rest in and with God. And this one, this one might be the, the most difficult for us. I think I might have said that before in this series, but I think every week I'm like, oh, we need this so badly. I need this so badly. We enter into the room where life with God brings us peace. Real peace. Where, where we experience rest. The kind of rest that all the, the burning feelings of I have to do, I have to be, I have to accomplish are quieted in the presence of God. Where wholeness is really experienced imperfectly in this life, but in a real way. Rest in the sustaining grace of God is good news and eternal life here and now because this world is broken. We live in a modern moment in a particular city and culture where we, we really struggle to remember on a day-by-day -day basis, this world is broken. We individually and corporately and structurally and systemically in culture are broken. Suffering and evil and alienation that death has imposed upon the world are impossible for us to overcome. There's no glorious heyday that we need to go back to, and there's no future glory that we can attain on our own that we need to progress to. No matter how much we try to ignore this brokenness or cover it up or escape it, the world will impose it upon us. But following Jesus brings us a kind of power in his gracious presence to endure through any affliction because we have a wholeness that the world can't give us and hope that the world can't take from us. Let me say that again. Following Jesus, that is real discipleship, contrary to mere being a Christian in name and belief only, brings us the power to endure through any affliction because we have wholeness that the world can't give us and hope that the world can't take from us. There's a classic book by Eugene Peterson called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He's actually taking a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche about a long obedience in the same direction is the only way that you can find meaning in life. And he's, he's ironically superimposing it as a slogan for what it really means to be a Christian. Talk about enduring grace or sustaining grace, right? Long obedience, same direction. It's kind of the opposite of everything we really long for in our moment, right? The subtitle of the book is Discipleship in an Instant Society. 
and it was written 43 years ago. Like television was the most like screen time that you needed to try and mitigate back then. And this is what he said. The world is no friend to the life of grace. Each generation has the world, he's speaking of how Jesus talked on the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, has the world to deal with in a new form. The world is an atmosphere, a mood. It is nearly as hard for a sinner to recognize the world's temptations as it is for a fish to discover impurities in the water. There is a sense, a feeling that things aren't right, that the environment is not whole, but just what it is eludes us. We know that the spiritual atmosphere in which we live erodes faith, dissipates hope, corrupts love, but it's hard to put our finger on what's wrong. A person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. Or we might say in our series, for the home in which grace resides. Now, some of you hear that and you're like, come on, like, it's not that bad out there. Like, things are going pretty well. So let's unpack a little bit of what the world might mean 43 years after Dr. Peterson, Pastor Peterson, wrote those words. Why is sustaining grace the most elusive kind of grace experience that we could have? How is the modern world sapping our endurance, and what does it have to do with the with God life? Well, we have already been called, and I'm just going to say we broadly, all right? Some of you are pre this, some of you are post this, but most of us are in this, have been called by author Anne Helen Peterson, the burnout generation. Because, quote, every moment of the day must be spent on work, self-improvement, personal branding, making connections, optimizing, and side hustles. Financial crises, student loan debt, and economic uncertainty drive much of this obsession with working and self-improvement, but the effect is burnout, exhaustion, and an inability to handle simple life tasks. She notes that burnout among millennials is increasingly the contemporary condition. What if it's not supposed to be this way? Like, who is telling us that this is the assumed way that the world just has to be? What if day by day we could experience a renewing reality of peace where hurry feels alien to us, where a crammed calendar is something that, that we're disgusted by. We're like, oh, I hate days like this because they're so unusual. Any of us feeling th this kind of burnout in our day-to-day -day life? 
whether on a 1 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10? Who? All right. Most. Most. This burnout culture saps our endurance following Jesus. And here's the other thing. Here's the, the more subtle thing. This burnout culture makes us feel like following Jesus is an idealistic impossibility. Because it tells us the conditions required for living human lives here and now are opposed to what Jesus tells us being a human can be like. Do you see how the lies of the world don't just make it hard to be a Christian, they make it seem like an impossible ideal. That's the swimming in water like a fish that can't discern impurities in the water. Friends, it doesn't need to be like that. Grace and the continual message of Jesus in the New Testament means rest is at hand. A life of peace is livable. And it doesn't mean that we need to retreat out somewhere deep into the valley and make a commune where we can experience it. We can experience it here and now. The downside in all of this, the outcome of that kind of burnout culture is that we think we need to simply delay spiritual maturity until a later date. This is, we're looking at a fork in the road and saying, all right, sustaining grace is accessible to us. Real life of rest and peace is near and accessible. The world propels us to delay spiritual maturity to a later date. Barna, a very, a very prominent research corporation, conducted a study of millennials and Gen Z asking, what do you want to accomplish by the time you are 30? Those of us who are past 30 say, <laughs> ha, so much ambition that you had in your late teens and early 20s, and then depression later in your 20s as you realized it wasn't going to happen. Um, the most popular answers among millennials, what, I didn't write this down. When are millennials, when does it stop? I know it's before 1990. Millennials? The cutoff. The cutoff. We'll just say millennials are 1980 to 2000. All right? You were born sometime in that time. All right? You're a millennial by my advanced studies on the fly in the moment with crowd feedback. So it must be, it must be accurate. So millennials, the number one answer, one through five, were these. I want to, before 30, first, number one most common, 59%, become financially independent. Second, finish my education. Third, start my career. Both of those were over 50%. Then, find out who I really am. Then, follow my dreams. Between the 30s and 40s percentages. Sixth, sixth at 29% was become more spiritually mature. It was actually an option for everyone. 
and only one-third said become spiritually mature. Occupation, money, education. Like those are okay things to want to do before you're 30. But if those come before learning the ways of Jesus, guess what's not going to happen after you're 30? Suddenly the ways of Jesus are going to take priority in your life. For Gen Z, the top answers were finish my education and start my career, both at 66%, so even higher, like a higher threshold of urgency, and then become financially independent at 65%, followed by follow your dreams, enjoy life before you have the responsibilities of being an adult. <laughs> Adulting, right? Find out who you really are, travel to other countries, Get married? You guys are ambitious. <laughs> and coming in at ninth with only 16% was become more spiritually mature. Um, if sustaining grace is the antidote for burnout culture, then the only alternative to living in this milieu of hurry, hustle, busy is the very thing that we're putting sixth or ninth on the list. Remember, bad theology about grace tells us grace is just unmerited forgiveness. And so God's going to forgive me anyway. So yeah, I can kick it off till I'm 30. That's why we need broad vision of what of what life we're invited into following Jesus. That there's actually an antidote to our experience of anxiety, depression, fear, debilitating, crippling, relational uncertainty. All of this doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, Dr. Alan Noble summarizes this milieu. He puts words to this milieu that we're swimming in. This is the modern Western world's milieu. There's a narrative. This is the narrative in one sentence. You are your own and belong to yourself. You are your own and belong to yourself. That's what it means to be a human according to our world and our culture right now. The essence of our humanity is self-belonging. So you can understand why financial independence and finishing a career and pursuing a, a job, um, whatever it may be, those things all seem essential to establishing oneself. Self-belonging sounds exhilarating in a way, but it places upon us the mantles of being Savior and Lord of our own life. And so, we're anxious, we're depressed, we are alone, we are busy and hurried because those mantles are not made for us. Deep down, we know that we cannot be those to ourselves. We cannot lie to ourselves. So we're haunted by what Dr. Noble calls the five burdens of self-belonging. You don't need to remember these, but I think you will resonate with them. He says, if I am my own first and I belong to myself, 
the first and most significant implication is that I am wholly responsible for my life. Secondly, if I am my own and belong to myself, I must define who I am. Third, I am responsible for creating meaning in my life. Fourth, I am responsible for determining right and wrong in my life. And fifth, any and all associations, ties, and relationships I have are voluntary. So it's pretty easy to see how identity, meaning, purpose, community, morality are all on us to figure out and define. No wonder we're busy. No wonder we're frantic. No, no wonder we are exhausted. Because those are questions and declarations that we were never made to answer. They're not freeing realities. They're modern day narratives that place us under the spiritual bondage of the old ways of exile we read about in Scripture enslavement to the idols of the world that have simply taken gold statues and placed gold around us and our lives. Self-centeredness is the most common religion in the Western world. It's just marketed as a lifestyle brand. So here is my plea for us today that we would work with all our might together to hear afresh the old narrative that continually feels new that has been told over us in Jesus and that we would seek to enact certain things in our lives that reinforce a way of living in the freedom we have that we would feel it and experience rest. That's what I think this kind of grace offers us in sustaining grace. Uh, the enduring grace that we need in our culture is not the kind that is willing to be beaten for attending church like people have been in the past, but the kind that can deny the narratives that place the burden of self-belonging on ourselves, then believe the gospel truth, and then live it out in our world. Really simply, if you take nothing else away from today, hear what the Heidelberg Catechism, catechisms are just doctrine, truths that are ironclad for all people at all times when we follow Jesus. The first question and answer on it is, what is my only hope in life and death? This is the answer. Our only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're going to build a little bit of theology regarding sustaining grace through these passages we read. John 14, 19 through 21. This is Jesus teaching his disciples in his longest set of teachings from John 13 through 17. He says, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. 
in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What he's speaking of is his ascension to God the Father, where physically, he's not going to be with the disciples anymore. And the world will just think he's gone, he's dead, he's in the grave. He says, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. Hear this. And manifest myself to him. Two things to notice. Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. If Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, it means death has suffered the mortal wound that will one day lead to its own death, its non-existence anymore. Therefore, we will live in Jesus Christ. Most of us, all of us rather, unless Jesus returns beforehand, will encounter physical death. But if we are in Jesus, it's actually a doorway. It has been completely inverted. We will enter through death a kind of life that we cannot even imagine right now. You will see Jesus face to face. You are free from the narratives of the world. That's the point here. The world says you will not be living a life worth having unless you are successful materially, unless you have defined your reason for living, unless you have worked out um, a, a vision for your life of impact towards people, unless you're likable, unless you're successful. Those are shackles. You weren't made to have those things. You were made for the freedom that you can have in Jesus where all of those narratives that are told to you that make you feel horrible and enslaved if you submit to them, you were made for freedom from them in Jesus. To say, Jesus is alive, so I am alive, and I will be alive. But he doesn't just speak that over them. He really strangely then says, if you obey my commandments, you will love me. And if you love me, we will love you and manifest ourselves to you. Remember, the gospel is declaration, but grace is invitation. We must respond to grace that is freely given to us. And we participate with it. And so obedience in the Christian life, real, real meaningful following Jesus is not just drudgery and duty. It's pressing more deeply into God. It's reprogramming our lives. And at the end, what it means is we experience a supernatural reality with God. Like, we're not talking hyper-Pentecostalism. We're talking Scripture saying, I will manifest myself to you if you love me. That's crazy. So you are free and you are not alone. And not just theoretically or theologically. By the Holy Spirit in you, Jesus can communicate his real presence to you day by day. But we have to be set on following Jesus 
in the ways that he is laid out in Scripture. Sustaining grace means the rest that we find in God will always be able to carry us through our trials, our temptations, our afflictions, and our doubts. Because we belong to Jesus and live in Him, we are ensphered in His presence in a real way, in an experienceable way. And the full force of heaven is on our side, strengthening us and carrying us with the powerful love of Father, Son, and Spirit. Because Jesus lives, if you choose to bow in this life to Him and trust Him and follow Him, you too live. And it doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you don't fail. It doesn't mean you don't sin. It doesn't mean you don't struggle. It doesn't mean you don't doubt. But that those things can never separate you from Him. Church, you belong. We belong to Jesus Christ and not to ourselves. Next passage, 1 Peter 5, 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Um, if you suffer and struggle, it's not because you're doing something wrong. Scripture is so honest about the human experience. After you have suffered a little while, isn't that an interesting uh, paradox? You will suffer. It's only going to be a little while. And I know I see a small proportion of our collective suffering but I do see suffering among us here, faces in this room, people that are part of our community but not here this morning. And Jesus knew that his people would suffer. Actually, following Jesus increases your suffering. Did you know this? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be What? Persecuted. Um, so not only will people oppose us, but also we cannot cope with our struggles in the same way that the world can. We can't run to sin and idols to numb and anesthetize our longings and our pain. We can't just cave into addiction without caring. There's a battle that's a kind of suffering. But not only is Jesus with us, not only because he lives will we live, but God the Father is over us. That's what Peter's saying. After you've suffered a little while, I know it's hard, the God of all grace It's not only Jesus that we follow. It's not only Him that sustains us, but God the Father over us. 
He knows exactly what you can handle and will never allow you to be undone by the circumstances of your life. He's a good father, not an uncaring or apathetic or abusive father, certainly not an absent one. Any good parent has two traits. One, they are affectionate toward their child and desirous of them for their encouragement. But second, they discipline their child that they may become who they were made to be. Those two things covered even in the secular world in a book called Grit by Angela Duckworth. She talks about how real meaningful substance is created, resilience is created in human beings. We are not fragile. We are anti-fragile. We need struggle. We need difficulty to become who we are made to be. Parents are in our lives to help us be encouraged and confident and challenged, though, that we could become who we're made to be. That's what God the Father does in the life of a believer. And that means a lot of times we don't get what we want, but we get what's good for us. And one day we will come to see that it was actually good for us and praise him and thank him. But he also is with us to comfort and encourage us. That's why these two pairs of words are together. It says that God will strengthen and establish us. He's disciplining us so that we could become more upright and strong for his purposes in the world. But not just that, he will restore and confirm us. He will comfort and come alongside of us that we could have the encouragement to keep going. So Jesus lives and we will live. And he will manifest himself with us. And that is a key to being sustained in this life. But also God the Father is over us, strengthening us, comforting and encouraging us. And that's a key to sustaining grace. Here's a conviction for us to take on. Sustaining grace does not mean life will suddenly be easy. If your life is suddenly easy, be very careful. Because you're probably missing something. But it does mean that we have a trustworthy Heavenly Father who is orchestrating a grand symphony of our circumstances in order to communicate his love and mature us as images of Jesus. And sometimes in the symphony, there are downturns. Sometimes in symphonies, there are overtures. I think I said that right. I'm not a music major. But to endure today, you do not need a change in your circumstances. You do not need a change in your circumstances. But to see and remember together that our Heavenly Father is not aloof or abusive toward us, but lovingly over and orchestrating our lives. John, 1 John 4.4 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. That means uh, the spirits that are in the world. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
We've talked about Jesus. We've talked about the Father. And now the one who is in us, Holy Spirit, enables us to endure with sustaining grace because he who is in us is stronger, greater than the one who is in the world. Okay? Indulge uh, a little bit of the Marvel Universe with me. What is in Wolverine's bones? Adamantium. Right? What does adamantium do? Makes him strong. Doesn't it like regenerate him really quickly or something like that? Okay. Okay. Simmer down. While we don't have that in our bones, we have Holy Spirit in our bones. You laugh. But it's here in 1 John 4. The one who is in you is stronger, greater, superior to, over, untouchable by the one who's in the world. You can never be separated from the presence of God by anything in the world, and certainly not our adversary, the enemy. The Spirit is with us, holding us more tightly than the world can pull us away from God. Grace is infused in our bones by the Holy Spirit within us. Your strength is not your own. That's why Paul in first, or 2 Corinthians 12 says, God told him expressly, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Holy Spirit plus human weakness equals God's strength. It does not feel like strength. It feels like weakness. It feels like you cannot take another step. But in the simple initiative to believe and take another step, you find that you had the strength in you by Holy Spirit who is there. You see that? So faithfulness for you today might not be mustering up a bunch of strength or doing something extravagant or amazing for God, but taking another step in your suffering getting out of bed, engaging community, meeting someone's needs when you feel like your own aren't even being met. Now, um, chances are this is, this is confronting to us. This is jarring to us, especially, um, and I want to be careful here, in a world where self-care it has, has kind of come to front and center stage. There are healthy elements of that. We cannot believe that we do not have limitations. Right? Think about sleep. In the sleeping quarters of the house of God, we still sleep. There's nothing more creaturely in acknowledging of our limits than sleep. Maybe that's the element of repentance for us this week, is getting the sleep that we need. But spiritually... Um, Self-care in Christian discipleship is acknowledging our creaturely limitations, is not believing that we ourselves are God. You should acknowledge and care for those self-limitations. But what we can't do is believe that if we're tired, what we need is a little R&R or me time in order to endure tomorrow. That runs into conflict 
with so much that we see in Scripture. In fact, the kind of maturity in Christian disciples following Jesus is the kind that can endure suffering and continue to love other people. It's more like a self-forgetfulness than self-care in a lot of the way that the world means it today. So acknowledge our limits and care for those limits and get sleep and eat and be healthy. But do not be self-centered. And a part of this repentance is a rethinking about our lives. Like I said at the start, we are immersed in a world that tells us Jesus is so ideal that it's an unlivable kind of life. We have to be busy if we want to be real, successful, thriving people. And that's not true. When our worldview, whether explicit or implicit, comes into contact with what God says the narrative really is, repentance is what's required. Repentance is not spiritual drudgery. It's certainly not like beating ourselves up religiously. It's rethinking and adjusting our lives to come under what God has told us and the invitation God extends to us. So a couple of ways that I think we can do this. First is we need to be open to repentance. Um, a lack of daily, regular, getting used to God bumping into your life and correcting you makes you very fragile. And if you're very fragile, you are not able to endure you're brittle. I think we've all seen older people in our lives that are stuck in their ways. C.S. Lewis said, uh, first, you, uh, first you grumble, then, oh, someone help me. I'm sorry. I didn't have some of these written down. First you grumble about something. Yes. And then you are a grumble. Yes. That's human formation in action. Thank you, Paul. First, you grumble. You say, oh, gosh, well, what are my bosses at work doing? They're so incompetent. And then you become a grumbler where your normal proclivity entering into spaces is to grumble about things not being the way that they're supposed to be. Ugh, why is church like this? And then you become a grumble where everything in your life is tainted with this hue of complaining. That's why when Scripture lists out sins, it, it speaks about people in really harsh ways. It says, all liars murderers. It throws labels on people where we're like, whoa, that's intense. Because that's what sin does to us. A lack of repentance and receiving the correction of the Lord makes us into the worst versions of ourselves. And we are young in this room. What we need to cultivate if we want to endure with Jesus over the long haul is a heart of tenderness toward his voice, receptivity to the hand of our Father, and affection for the Holy Spirit. It is 
frightening to change the way you live. But that is just the old shadow of death trying to cover you and intimidate you from walking into the light of life with God. And so repentance is a continual tilling of our hearts, taking out the stony parts, cultivating tenderness, that we could become more and more the kind of fruitful kingdom people who love God, who are free from the world and its tyranny, and can give themselves away to church and neighbor in love. Isn't that what we want? Don't give in to those like feelings of like ah repentance that just sounds like religious bludgeoning it's invitation to spiritual intimacy with god and transformation with him because as jude 24 says he if we would entrust ourselves to him he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. If we would simply participate with God's program, that's the promise laid out for us. Great joy, fullness of glory in his presence, and he can actually make you the kind of person who doesn't stumble. Doesn't mean perfect, but you are not doomed to spiritual mediocrity. So repentance is a practice of sustaining grace because it gets us into the light continually. But a second one is Sabbath. This is the spiritual discipline of exercising our freedom from the narratives of the world. I already laid it out in the beginning. Um, There are different opinions about whether Sabbath is law for people. I'm not saying that it is a command over you and I. But I think that it's about the most wise spiritual discipline that we can take up in our generation to renounce the slavery of busyness. So we could, we could talk about and resource one another on Sabbath. Start with six hours where you refrain from work, email, whatever. If you can't, take 24 hours. My family and I do sun up or sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. And we just say, we're free. Most of the time, we get to live that out. Sometimes, because it's not law, uh, sometimes life kind of breaks in on us and there are things to do. But it's a practice that reminds us of what we always have in Jesus. Third practice is corporate prayer. We need other people to pray for us. It's not an optional element of the Christian life to be prayed for by other people. It's not an optional element of the Christian life to pray with other people in vulnerability. Because what we need to hear when the road is hard is that there are fellow strugglers who are still setting their eyes on Jesus, are still stumbling forward, and then people who are ahead of us and have been through what we have been through and proved God's faithfulness. And one of the most basic elements of that is praying together. And so we have prayer team every week. That's not just a nicety, but an essential element of spiritual health for us as a people. And so if you see one of the the volunteers up here with a prayer team on a Sunday not praying, 
you should be greedy for their prayers. It's like one area. There might be other areas, but there's one area where it's okay to be greedy in our church. Don't say, oh, well, I'm sure someone else is struggling more than I am. Go get it. All right. So, if we would participate in this, Romans 15 tells us what God can do for us. May the God of endurance and encouragement, how many of you need endurance to take another step today? How many of you need encouragement to know it will be okay? Notice that Paul says those are character markers of who God is. You get into his presence, those are the fruit born in your life and experience. Grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Huh. God is one of endurance and encouragement, and what we need that for is to endure together in unity that we can glorify God together through Jesus Christ. And then Romans 15, 13, he is also the God of hope who can fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. As we take the Lord's Supper, um, we get to remember we have what we need to live another day with the people of God renouncing the hurriedness in our life, the busyness that the world would impose on us, even for some of us, maybe many of us, the ambition that didn't come from God for our life, to say, Jesus, you are what I need. Father, you are the one that I long for. Holy Spirit, help me to live and endure step by step with Jesus because I can tell you, friends, the best fruit in your life, in you, in community, and in the world around you, the, like your neighbors, all of that, is not something quick. It's not something explosive and wow-oriented. It's slow, mundane, methodical faithfulness. Um, if, as I look back and reflect on my life, most of the kind of person that I am today, contrary to who I was when I met Jesus, has actually been cultivated through suffering and difficulty. And like I could say that with 100% authenticity. There's been a lot of suffering in following Jesus. And he is faithful. And I can tell you it's worth it. And there are countless saints in this room who can tell you it's worth it keep going. The only failure is to quit, okay? And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper, remembering the one who endured the cross for us, that we could endure with him. Amen? Jesus, strengthen our feeble knees. Put your spirit as strength in our spines, cultivate tenderness in our hearts that could grieve and lament and rejoice and experience life in the way that it needs to be experienced day by day, enduring with you. 
Lord, help us to not have maturing in our spirituality be number six or number nine on our list, but as the ultimate desire on our list, knowing that everything else flows in its wake. Jesus, please communicate to us by your Holy Spirit where we are busy, hurried, exhausted, merely coping, trying to live beyond our limits and worship of the idol of success or materialism or greed or false security or whatever it may be that we could receive afresh your presence. Help us to know that obedience to you is never irrelevant or impossible in our lived experience, but to trust you. That as we follow you, we flourish. Make us a people in a church that represent and bear the fruit of heaven on earth over the long haul. I pray that half of this room would be here in 10, 15 years, enduring still in this city, and that those we are able to send out would be disciples filled with resilience, relying upon your grace. Would you make it so, Lord, we pray for our church, that it would be here 100 years from now, continuing to lift up Jesus and teach people your ways in the midst of our ever-changing world. Please help us. Jesus, we trust you. In your name, amen.